July 1984, released Double Nickels on the Dime. You're one of the only people who's on two of the greatest double albums of all time because of your appearance on Providence off of Daydream Nation. That thing with Providence sets me on his answer machine. I didn't go in the studio or anything. The way it was, they had no doorbell. So there was a payphone under their window and you would call up. You hear me say, hey, it's Watt on the Punk Telephone. Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with the Brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on the Minutemen, along with our unbelievably special guest, Mike Watt himself, who will be sifting through the sacred transmissions issued forth from his younger self and rating them all, every last LP, EP, and single from zero to five stars. This, then, is part two of our three-part Watt Rates the Minutemen series, in which Watt reveals all the elements that came together to make their classic What Makes a Man Start Fires LP as crazily good as it is, the one single song from Double Nickels on the Dime on which Watt played with a pick, and the full story behind one of music history's great rivalries, Minutemen and Husker Du. Coming up, we've got John Worcester talking about his favorite live albums of all time, Mark Robinson from Unrest rating everything he's ever done, Robert Schneider from The Apples in Stereo rating everything he's ever done, and Will Hart from the Olivia Tremor Control rating everything they ever did. Oh, and Michelle Phillips rating everything she's ever done, alongside Mamas and Papas author Richard C. Campbell, who's written a brand new book about him getting kind of itchy. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for a significantly longer director's cut of this interview that's both ad-free and available a week ahead of time, along with the complete versions of all our shows, just go to patreon.com slash discograffiti and subscribe. Even if you're not sure, just head on over there because it's finally completely free to become a basic member. We've got 100 episodes available exclusively on Patreon, and that number as well as the Discograffiti Inner Circle, is growing exponentially by the day. That's patreon.com slash discograffiti. And away we go then. Tonight's guest can say with the straightest of faces that he was a member of one of the greatest bands of all time. He can also say if the urge strikes that he appears on two of the greatest double albums of all time. Not many can lay claim to that. His manically melodic fleet-handed bass runs are the thing of legend, and that legend began when the punk scene somehow midwifed the Minutemen in good old San Pedro, California in 1980. Throughout its existence, the band recorded four albums and eight EPs, and he's also gifted us with four solo albums, four with former wife Kira Rosler as the duo Dose, another three as part of the punk jazz jam band Banyan, with Jane's Addiction, Stephen Perkins, Wilco's Nelson. Klein and the Beasties, Money Mark Nishida, not to mention 
killing it as the basis for the Stooges in 2003, baking loaves of Wonder Bread for nigh on 45 years so as to keep us mealy-mouthed superfans wondering and wondering with that uniquely ground-out blend of punk, funk, hard rock, calypso, hell, you name it, and hell motherfucking train wreck it. Lads and ladies out there pounding the corn dog littered pavement of downtown Pedro, it's one of the most preternaturally important people to ever breeze through the music game. The first person to talk in third person, Mike Watt. David, thank you for having me aboard. It's an amazing process watching you guys chronologically write these songs that are just trying to get up on their feet and walk around because you're kind of recreating your notion of music from the ground up. And then within a couple of years to see these incredibly complex... Kind of ground up, okay, because there's huge influences. One was another England band called Pop Group. Oh, yeah. This idea of putting Captain Beefheart with P-Funk was an incredible idea that showed us you can do anything you fucking want it's your band (laughs) yeah we are all prostitutes especially i think is a fantastic song yeah well greg ginn actually played us the first one why they would Mm -hmm. play records at sst i was there soldering sst stands for solid state transmitter greg ginn was way into ham radio i think that's why he got way into touring because he was talking to people in other towns you got to realize the hollywood punk bands i think only the dills had a van they didn't tour i guess the goal was to be king of hollywood i i don't know but Greg was like, no, you got to take this to other towns yeah. and stuff. And again, the open-mindedness of 70s punk. Anything went. Everything from Hamburger Lady from the Throb and Gristle to, you know, God Save the Queen to Beat on the Brat. Yeah, but you're right. The orthodoxy of that movement. I mean, genre always has certain rules. But with some, you know, whether you're talking about film, music, doesn't matter. Some orthodox- Look, the first band that could sell out the whiskey was the Screamers. They didn't even have a guitar. Right. You got to realize, too. Dave in them days shit changed really quick one year 78 was not like 79 right come the later 80s things start plateauing out really plateaus out in the 90s you know what always seemed like the central crux of the schism of the movement is rocket from the tombs splitting off into pair ubu and the dead boys because to me the art damaged end of it and the straight up pogoing and gobbing those are the two sides of punk if you want to simplify it anyway august 1981 the joy ep it was recorded in August, released in August, recorded and mixed in five hours. Another great release. Only three songs. This is your first release on New Alliance, which, again, another mind blower. You only had one EP. You already have a record company. Just to jump way, way ahead now, I mean, you've played in so many different outfits. Can you help but compare everything you've done to this vision of perfection that was actualized in the 1980s with your best friend? Yeah, or is it a separate thing? Yeah, yeah. No, no, of course. It all adds up. Today is always the sum of all the yesterdays. Uh, you're too full of yourself to say that that has nothing to do with what went on before. Without Deep Boom, without his mom, put me on bass. Jeez. Well, I mean, you know, my heart kind of breaks for you because you had, I mean, it was really the perfect situation, unrepeatable. And, you know, you can't manufacture something like what happened with you guys. No, but I also didn't know I was going to have the opportunity to help the Stooges for right. 126 months. 126 yeah. months. I 
got to go right to the source, not second hand, not third hand. D. Boone, that would have flipped him out. He could, wouldn't have been able to believe that. I still can't. I still can't. No, your whole career is an inarguable success. And I saw you guys on that tour, and it was incredible. You had something very special. And, you know, there's two sides to the story, which is not many people get to be in a situation like this where life is truly perfect. But if you have that taken away from you, it's hard to soldier on. The first time I had to deal with death was his ma dying when we graduated high school. We're 18 right. years old. And she was the pillar of that family. Yeah. And somehow we had to keep on keeping on. And little did I know that almost 10 years later, I would have to do the same thing with him. Right. Is his dad still around by chance? No, no, no. Okay. We lost him. Emphysema ended up getting him. But what helped uh. him through that was the royalties from Corona. Spike Joan asked me to use that for his jackass show, and all the money went to his father. So D-Boo got to help his pop without even being here. That's awesome. And to think from a polka as well. All right, so we both give the Joy EP four stars. We're on the same page there. All right, so moving on to the punchline then. November 1981, it was recorded in July 81. Punchline's really important because that's like our first like kind of album. Yeah, well, it's your first album. Even though it's only 15 minutes. What is it, well, Group Sex by Circle Jerks is 15 minutes too. Yeah, it doesn't make it any less of a full album as far as I'm concerned. In those days, two opening bands, remember, we don't get paid till our 35th gig. And it was at the Starwood. Remember, $100 for opening for Black Flag. So you didn't get a lot of time, 15, 20 minutes. So it's kind of like a gig, like you going to see a Minuteman gig. Just like you said before, recorded during a late night session when studio time was the cheapest. Recorded on previously used tape, which is, to me, the biggest mind blower of all. Here's how it worked. 30 ips, 2-inch tape. Mm hmm $150 for 15 minutes. If you bought it used, that means somebody already recorded on it and then erased it. $75. Yeah. In film, there's a similar kind of a thing called short ends, where you're buying the end of a roll that wasn't completely used. But you never know, because it's short ends, if it got flashed or if something is wrong with the, the film stock. With tape, maybe it's a little bit more of a reliable notion, but the fact that you're creating really a classic record on pre-used audio tape, it can't fail to bring a smile to my face every time I think of it. Like I said before, David, we jammy Connell was not a slogan. It was a right. way of us doing things. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discograffiti is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. Becoming a member of Discograffiti's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more exclusive episodes. And moving forward now, every Sunday for only $5 a month as a private first class, you get our new weekly show by and for Discograffiti's Patreon family, the Discograffiti Soldiers of Sound podcast. It'll be hosted by Rudy Fishman, and given his sociopathic tendencies, I'm sure it'll have a lunatic's take over the asylum edge to it. If all you want to do is show some love, there's now finally a $1 tier. Don't miss out. Become a recruit and get your personalized backstage pass for a buck. And for the cheapskates, homeless people, and all the bums sponging off mom and dad, don't care, just join. It's now completely free to join as a basic member, and it'll be the only place you'll be able to get our upcoming Lou Barlow, Corey Hansen, Mark Robinson comp, Metal Machine Music. 
Prozac, as well as the triple album rock opera El Farmony I created with Joe Kennedy as the mentally regarded and the ability to purchase one-off Patreon episodes. That's it. Back to the show. Now, you guys would only get better as time went on, but these songs are great. There's nothing on here that I don't think is amazing. Nothing. Do you have any particular ones that stand out to you? Any particular tracks? First one, Georgie wrote the words. Search. Love it. Is that your favorite? On that record? Maybe. Yeah, it's pretty. I never really thought about what my favorite is because a lot of times these records seem like one song to me. Yeah, yeah. This one especially has a uniformity of purpose to every single track. They don't sound the same necessarily. Also, was the initial intention to have all three of you singing, writing the tunes, or was it always meant to be that kind of a thing? Well, like I said about reactionaries, Deep Boom wouldn't write anything for that. He wanted to write and sing for this band big time. And by the way, the name Minutemen, you know, like I said, he asked me for a list of names i actually had the two word minute men because right. i was making fun of our fucking arena rock days <laughs> that nuremberg rally shit mm-hmm. and he said no no turn it into one word and pronounce it like the old revolutionary because there's fucking fascist elements in the country trying to appropriate patriotic symbols and we could dilute that by calling ourselves the same thing then that happened to us in the 90s <laughs> with those clowns at the border <laughs> right right Shows to go, you're right. Humans are an interesting species. You know, one thing that has been talked to death about you guys is Husker Du's and Arcade and Minutemen Double Nickels. But very infrequently, if ever, have I heard of anyone saying that the punchline is like Land Speed record in terms of, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones went back and forth inspiring each other, right? So, do you know about Land Speed record? Hell yeah. Do you know who put it out? It was me and D. Boone. N-A-R-007. Okay. It was recorded live at the 7th Street entry. Greg Ginn, Black Flag, just did some gigs with Husker, and Greg gives me a cassette. And he says, look, we can't put this out, but maybe you guys just started a label. Listen, me and D. Boone listened to it. We thought it was like real fast Blue Oyster Cult. In those days, it was the phone, right? So eight-hour talk with Bob Bold, eight-hour talk Grant Hart, eight-hour talk Greg Norton. And yeah, we put out Land Speed Record. We also put out the first three Descendant albums. So I got to ask you then, is this the back and forth inspirational tennis volley? Does it begin here? Was Land Speed Record like, oh, uh, we could play even faster than that with even better. So was it that kind of thing? We knew we had no idea who they were. All we knew was this cassette that Greg gave us. We meet him by talking on the phone. Then they come to SoCal to record stuff like Metal Circus. We get to play with them. D. Boone does a big cookout for them. If you're talking about the connect with Double Nickels on the Dime, we had recorded an album, didn't even give it a title, which was weird. Because you got to understand about recording those days for our situation, David. We put out records. They were like flyers for gigs. So you'd put them out every six months. It was opposite of the racket, what you're talking about. You give it that I word, but I won't give it that respect. The (laughs) racket, they put out records and then tour to promote those. No, we put out records to promote our gigs. So every six months, no matter what, you got to record or you'll drop out of people's minds or something, public eye. So we have this record in November, 83, and then the Hooskers come to town, December, and record with Spotsky a double album. And we're like, whoa! I remember D-Boom made a cookout for him here at Cabrillo Beach and here in Pedro and stuff. You know, they're Minnesota guys, so they were digging it. They got a lot of lakes, but they're kind of cold. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, yeah. we go back in March, a couple months later of 84, and record another batch of songs, and that's where we come up with double. That's why it says, take that, Hooskers. They inspired us. There would never been a double nickels without a Zen Arcade. Which is not only apparent, but again, the breadth of 
what you guys and what the Hooskers were pulling in as influences, you know, with that eight miles high single in 84, I mean, that spoke to me because I am not just interested in punk rock. I like the fullness of the entire musical experience. And I saw that reflected back in what you guys, the Hooskers and Sonic Youth were listening to. Get this about eight miles high. I've read stuff about those guys like David Crosby and stuff. They say that guitar solo is inspired by John Coltrane. Mm -hmm. See how music works? Right. It all feeds John Coltrane said music is a big reservoir. We're all drinking from it. I guess we're all pissing in it, too. (laughs) (laughs) So I agree with you. Your debut record is five stars. We both are on the same page there. Summer 82, the Bean Spill EP. Uh, Your third EP, fourth release overall, six minutes, 12 seconds long total. What's your thoughts on this? Okay, here we go. I'm glad I got to talk about that putting out records every six months because it's time to put out another record. (laughs) But the situation is very hard for us. Remember I was telling you how people hated punk? The are on this shit to the pigs and really rough times and in fact black flags being taken to court by a label you know they thought they were making an unfamily record <laughs> not family right. friendly whatever the it was just all this stuff so we thought you know we don't want to burden sst they just hire a guy to help run the label named joe carducci and college radio really hasn't happened yet not till the rem guys get this i used to call stations for sst and greg asked me to use another name so it wouldn't be a guy yep. in the band right yep. so my name was spaceman <laughs> and it'd be guys the playlists are full of journey and shit these guys are looking people called it corporate pawn jobs you know where it wasn't the thing like later in the middle 80s where, you know, each DJ has his own show and all this crazy stuff. No, it was all like really lame. So yeah. anyway, the records are actually for people who go to record stores and buy them at Zed's, Poobah's, Rhino, because they're going to the gigs too. Right. You've got to understand the movement. It was a real self-contained scene. You let people know through kind of a, an internet without an internet, right? Because it's yeah. people. It's people. It's people. Like most yeah. things that are real. It's a people connect. So that's what Bean Spill Records about. And we're not gone. We're still available for gigs. Right, and even right, though all right. this hell's coming on us with the cops and uh, big labels suing Black Flag and all this nightmare, we're still out there doing gigs. And same with those guys. That's the damage record. I love if Reagan played disco. That's probably my favorite on the entire thing. But this one, you give four stars. I give- you know where that came from? I wrote a song to that because the only time where I asked Raymond to draw an idea, huh. and he said, man, I am not an illustrator. And I said, I know that, but I get this idea. What about Ronnie Reagan trying to disco dance? with a hammer in one hand and a sickle in the other. And he drew it. He drew it. But I was so embarrassed to ask him and ashamed of doing that that I never put it out. But I wrote a song instead to try to visualize that with words. That's awesome. You still have that drunk? I wonder. It would be worth a lot of money, huh? But, you know, I never thought of that. Me and Raymond is kind of like me and D. Boone. You guys are that close? Well, he's in New York City last 10 years. So I write him and talk, talk to him on the phone and stuff and see him when I'm there. But it's not like it used to be. I yeah. used to spend hours with him every day, especially after D. Boone. Oh, man, he was really important to me. He's the one guy who took me to see all these people like Elvin Jones and Pharaoh Sanders right. and Sam Rivers, Mr. Ray Brown, Cecil McBee and Tal Farlow and Blind Al Hibbler and little Jimmy Scott, Ima Suma. I tell you, man, these punk people had big open minds to music. All right, so Bean Spill, you gave four. I gave three and three quarters. But what I really want to do here is talk about your entire career in the Minutemen. You can chart this growth that continues 
continues happening. But there is a growth spurt that happens here because you guys coalesced in what strikes me as a very shocking way between the punchline and what makes a man start fires. That one year period there, you went, in my mind, from being a punk band to being a rock and roll band. Oh, hi, Dave again. I got to tell you about the next tier. As a lieutenant, you get an ad-free, substantially elongated director's cut of every episode. And you'll be getting the shows an entire week early from now on. And now back to our expertly crafted program. The SST Credence, the blue-collar working man's punk group. So, phase two, Jam and Econo, 1982 to 1985. That kicks off with January 1983's release of What Makes a Man Start Fires. Now, that's a weird record. That's a weird record. And if you want to know my reason for what you're talking about, it's all the gigs. The gigs yeah. made the Minutemen what they were. When it comes to What Makes a Man Start Fire, remember I said a little earlier about me and D. Boone having to live at my ma's while I was having knees. I was born with bad knees. So I had to have surgeries. They were so bad by this time, I had to have something done. So one at a time, I'm at home a lot. It was nine months of fucking leg because it would go down to the bone when they did the surgery and I'd have to build everything back up. So I'm at home. So that record is the only Minuteman record where I wrote all the music. I didn't write the drum fills. I didn't write the guitar solos. And I only wrote half the words. But right. I wrote all the verses, bridges, intros, outros. That stuff's mine. Yeah. That's what makes it different. I know this is a unique one in your canon. And to be honest with you, I assumed because D is this mythic figure because he passed away, unfortunately, that he was responsible for all of or most of what is on this record. And I find to my shock that a lot of this stuff is you. And this is just one after the other. The record's not long by any means, but it's, what, like 26 minutes, I think? It's um, longer than Punchline, and yeah. if you're talking about length, David, it's got the first Minuteman tune to go over two minutes, the anchor, which George Hurley wrote the words for. And by the way, the way I sequenced it, I put it by the words. I put my words, since I did half the words, I put half of those first. Then I put Georgie's words, then D. Boone's words start off the second side, and then I finish it off with the other half of my words. It's really cool. It seems like you have that going on other releases where it's like a Boone side and a Watt side. Well, that's actually what's called three-way tie for last. It's actually that side where we give a name to a side came from the Blue Oyster Cult, the Red and the Black, but it was actually the device we used to get fucking 48 songs in order in one night right, when we right. did double nickels on the dime. Yeah, we didn't know how to put 40. Ethan James mixed that thing in one night, but maybe yeah. we should wait till we get there. Yeah, let's wait till we get there. Thank you. <laughs> so we got to talk about the songs here because now the songs are starting to push to the forefront. There's one song from Bean Spill. There's another version of Split Red. 99 is one of my favorite songs you guys ever did. <laughs> That's yeah, Georgie yeah. lyrics. Seller be sold, D. Boone lyrics. And that is where I get the notion where that song's important to what music-wise, I gotta stop playing with a pick. I'm playing like rhythm guitar. Right. So that makes my idea, because I played with fingers before the movement, but I wasn't fast enough. But by this time, I'm fast enough. We've done a lot of gigs. And I'm saying, man, I ain't playing bass anymore. I'm playing rhythm guitar, which is okay for that tune. So by the time Double Nickels comes out, there's only one song on that record with a pick. Which one is that? Not shit from an old notepad, but we'll wait okay. till we get to that record. Yeah, yeah. There's one record in between. Buzzer Hal, that's still done with a pick. This is a masterpiece. Uh, you might blanch at words like that. We did it with Spotsky in three days. 
really yeah. quick up i can't remember the name in the hollywood studio b it was like the b room right again econo use tape late at night off hours in the, the b studio where you mix commercials and jingles right spotsky was so good at capturing the essence and not worrying about the bullshit but the sound of it it sounds fuller that's it what sounds, i'm talking about that's yeah, what well yeah. it's him too getting experience remember every record he does he's getting stuff every record the minutemen does every gig the minutemen play this is all adding up all the people we knew in the movement were evolutionary beings. Nobody was caught in a holding pattern. That's what I really dug yeah, about yeah. those cats and why they were so inspiring to me. I think you found yourselves here. I think it was a buildup to this, and then you're just kind of firing it off cylinders for quite some time here. I love this record. I've heard it a million times. Every time I hear something new in it, we both give it five stars. November 1983, Buzz or Howl Under the Influence of Heat EP. What an amazing piece of work this is. I love this, man. Very, this is very trippy, too, but for a different reason. Of course, it shares the same thing all the records do. It's time for another record. People are going to forget about us. Time for another flyer, right? To put on telephone poles, which are actually people's ears. <laughs> but anyway, we want to try another producer. This cat says to us, I want to put out a compilation Radio Tokyo tapes. If you give me a song for free, I'll record one of your songs for free. Now, he don't really know us that well. So what we do is we take three of our songs and put it together. He thinks it's one song. That's the A side of Buzz or How. <laughs> so it's for free, the A side. The B side, like I said, Spassky did that live to two track. So it's kind of a bridge between the old days. Talk about a transition record. That one kind of is. It's the last one I play with a pick. B side is live to two track. That only costs $50. That whole record costs $50. 50 bucks. Yeah, that's crazy. Now, the, the artwork was going to be these tree frogs from Central America color. But then we found out this color separations were a thousand dollars. Yeah. It's like, no way. You, you could do the, the one color, you know, just black and white or one color, no separations for 25, $27. So I get Joe Biza to draw that cover. Joe Biza is a guitar man for uh, Second Trust. He does that cover in one night with a pen and ink. So a song like Cut, entirely written ah, by you. I'll tell you, I'll tell you about Cut. Now, at that time, when we made that record, us and Black Flag are cracking in the same place, an old, a former dentist office in Old Town Tards that got raided the police. I got taken, I got arrested. That's a nightmare thing, but luckily the judge threw it out and stuff like that. But anyway, we're practicing with them. A lot of these guys, they didn't learn by copying records, right? So they're finding out about stuff as they learn how to play. Correct. And they're so stuff like a Ronnie James deal. <laughs> so yeah, this this hard rock thing, it got a little infatuation with genre. Let me make fun of that. And that's what cut is. You're doing these basically like audio flyers for gigs. But in the interest of not being like a knee-jerk genericization about the material, you had to have known, even as a kid. Oh yeah, because this is an inside commentary. This is about right. two bands that practice in the same room kind of having a little fun with each other. How, how does an outsider going to know that? What the this fuck is, is Big Scissors? Stuff. You know, what is Big Scissors? You know, <laughs> actually, that's that, slang right? now. That's slang now. It's like when you want to get rid of something, when something's over, you say scissors. But you had to have known, holy shit, I'm really starting to create great work here. Even though you're humble and self-effacing, you had to know I'm really growing now, right? I mean, that had to have struck you. When you become a major, you get yet another show on Wednesday. Either Discography's The Top Ten, our Buried Treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our slag-off show, Queasy Listening, or exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind 
and that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash discograffiti. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discograffiti. You know what? We thought it was so bitching that we were getting to do gigs and make records. We didn't really think beyond that. Yeah. We really didn't. We thought more about the guys with you in the movement. It was such a polarized scene. There was so much hate for our thing. I'm not yeah. just talking Minutemen. I'm talking about the movement. It was really tiny. I remember there was a group, Chuck Tukowski on Tom Snyder show debated some lady who had a group called Parents of Punkers. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to get our kids through this. When hardcore <laughs> came, you know, before that, it was a weird little fringe thing up in Hollywood. But when it got to the suburbs with hardcore, straight square John society was getting really paranoid. And down the road was Blink-182 and Green Day. I don't know what they were worried about. Jocks painting their fingernails. But in those days, (laughs) they thought it was like some weird-ass thing that they had to stomp out. It wasn't just motherfuckers trying to make crazy art and funny clothes and names. What do you feel about the state of quote-unquote punk? Or I should say, like, in these days, the paucity of guitar-based and drum-based bands. I think it cracked open a hatchet never got close. I'm not talking about tributes to 1977. I'm talking about cats making whatever sounds they want from their bedroom. And And that way, technology ain't so bad because it made things a lot more econo. You wouldn't even have to buy used tape. Just buy the same pewter you got to use for your homework. Well, I would say Buzz or Howl, you give it five stars. I give it four and three quarters. The only thing is Dreams Are Free, Motherfucker, and Toe Jam, to me, are not as classic as Little Man. No, no, that stuff, those were not songs. That stuff Spotsky just took out as like kind of a little artifact of the session. That's all. It's a memento, right? The other other six, though, felt like a gringo. Classic. The the product, first time Minutemen record with a trumpet. Little Man with a gun in his hand. Later on, we'd get to jam this with the bassist Charlie Hayes. And then the other side, self-reference, cut, and dream told by Moto. There's no filler. No, there's no filler at all. At all. You know, maybe Spotsky's little mementos, but they're really brief. No, it's a great piece of work. It's one of my favorites that you guys have done. And then in early 84, the Politics of Time compilation came out. And by the way, I can't even tell you how many times I've completed a mix side using Ak Ak Ak. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Mixtapes. That was a huge, important fabric for our community, just almost yeah. as much as fanzines, almost as much as fanzines. Yeah, you've been on many, many a mixtape for me. But Politics of Time, the compilation, I'm assuming that without those first seven songs, which were recorded in November 81 at Casper Studio. <laughs> Again, that's leftover stuff from Bean Spill, the Mike Patton yeah. experiences, okay? But it was six months, you got to put out a record, okay? So you no, use what you use. Stuff. It's not like kind of plan to be. You know, sukiyaki, right? It's not really a recipe. It's whatever you got in the cupboard. Yeah, yeah. that's what it was. That's what was in the cupboard. Covered. This cat's from England, because first time we get to play in England, Black Flag brings us there, early 83. I guess the Royal Mail, or maybe it was our mail, but they x-rayed the cassette, so there was hardly any sound. <laughs> There's a version of Fanatics there. You can't even hear it. <laughs> It's a cool release. It's not as essential as your actual studio releases. You give it four stars. I'll give it three and a half. And then we move on to what I think is an important release just for the songs chosen. April 1984's Torchbill EP. So four songs, all covers. That's for Bob Moe. He's got a label called Reflex at the time. And so... 
from our first big tour by ourselves, not with Black Flag, it was for Double Nickels on the Dime, summer of 84. The last gig, Chuck Dukowski booked that tour, and he made a deal with the cat. Look, they don't have to get paid, but there's going to be a live broadcast, so give them the tape. So mm -hmm. we did. Bob Moe wanted to put us out since we put out Land Speed Record. See, it's a payback, right? Yeah, it yeah. Comes around, yeah. goes around. So we gave him those four songs. Some motherfucker went and bootlegged that live thing and said he was thanked as a roadie. And Joe Carducci went and bought all those bootlegs from him. It's called Wait a Minute Man or something like that. Hmm. It's this terrible bootleg. That was the reason why the triple album at the end was going to be half live. We thought the best way to fight a bootleg was have a better recorded live record. And D. Boo thought even better than that. And to like get some of our uh, kind of inclusiveness politic thing, let them pick the songs. So that's why the ballot result. But then, you know, he got killed. These particular tracks on this release on Tourspiel, that was you guys choosing them, right? I gave them to Bob Mould. Four songs, yeah. All four of my copy songs. One's Meat Puppet, yeah. one's Van Halen, one is Blue Oyster Cult, Cult, and one is Creedence. Just for the song choices alone, because the punk orthodoxy at that point was just, it was so strict that it was a revolutionary thing just for you guys to choose these songs, in my opinion. You had to have known that as well. I love this release. And when my son was born during the entirety of the labor, I could not get the song Red and the Black out of my head. It was just over and over and over. Well, we've been playing that since we were 13. Yeah, it's great stuff. I still play that with my bands, like Missing Man and Second Man and stuff. We both give this one four stars. And then you made a, a little-known double record called Double Nickels. Okay, moving right along. Next one after that. Just kidding. Not skipping this. July 1984 released Double Nickels on the Dime. You're one of the only people that is in existence who's on two of the greatest double albums of all time because of your appearance on Providence off of Daydream Nation. That thing with Providence sets me on his answer machine. I didn't go in the studio or anything. I know, but it just so happened he put you on another of one of the greatest double See, albums. See, well, the way it was, they had no doorbell. So there was a payphone under their window and you would call up you hear me say, hey, it's what on the punk telephone. And they put the keys in a sock and throw it down from the fifth floor so you could open the hatch and get up right. to their pad. Some of this stuff has been talked to death, and I don't want to steamroll over all that stuff because it's so available. But a few of the things that I want to talk about, number one, there's so many genres of music on this. Even if you come at it as a punk album, there's country, there's funk, there's Spanish guitar instrumental, spoken word, jazz. It spans the gamut of music history. And then for sequencing, Pink Floyd's Uma Guma was really the way forward, right? Well, a couple things. Ever wondered what your favorite bands talk about after the gig on the long van ride between Reno and Salt Lake City? Do you miss having in-depth conversations about music with your closest friends, picking apart why some songs are good and why some miss the mark completely? Do you read every inch of the available liner notes and still shake a fist at the clouds yelling for more? Damn it, more? If any of this sounds familiar, 1001 Album Complaints is the podcast for you. Every week, musicians and close friends give irreverent but informed takes on a new classic album pulled randomly from the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. The hosts do extensive research telling the stories behind your favorite records and helping you better understand how songs, both great and terrible, were conceived and built from the ground up. In short, it's a deep dive with lots of laughs. So if you want to sound informed and funny when talking about music, I recommend you follow or subscribe to 1001 Album Complaints right now. It's available everywhere.
like I said, there was a dilemma. We had to get an order in one night. Ethan mixed it all in one night. Now, it was recorded on the eight tracks, so drums was half the tracks. So he didn't have a lot, but still. And he did a great job. I tried to remix that thing in the late 80s. It's terrible. There's like 300 CDs out there. Yeah, we got to talk about that later. <laughs> shameful, <laughs> shameful. But anyway, I thought, I'm looking at the format. You usually put the needle on the outside. So I'm thinking maybe the shitty songs hug the label. You have your best ones right there on the outside. So... What if I gave each guy a side and then we draw straws to see who goes first and then pick them one at a time? That way, all the best songs will be on the outside. Whatever's left over will go on the fourth side. So George yeah. won. Now, the Umagama thing comes one of their albums was live, but the other album had one fourth going to each member, like their solo quarter. So we didn't do a whole quarter. We just did a tune each. By the way, not nearly as good as your effort. Umagama has great stuff on it, but it's so bloated. Deboon did Cohesion. Georgie did You Need the Glory, where he whistles and plays oil cans. And I did Take 5D, where I read a landlady's note. <laughs> yeah. uh, Deep Boone said my words were too spacey. Yep. So I, I used a landlady's note. I said, are these real enough? To me, Minuteman without Deep Boone is, is like incredibly stupid. So that's why I called it Take 5D. And I had Joe Biza play guitar, Dirk Vandenberg and John Rockniowski. And I tried to play some acoustic guitar. But that was the joke on there. The title actually was making fun of Sammy Hagar because he said he couldn't drive 55. And Deep Boone said, look, that guy drives crazy and plays safe music. Well, why don't we drive safe and play crazy music? Yeah, that's brilliant. It has nothing to do with a numbering system of highways or freeways. That's crazy. I've, I've seen the most stupid fucking people thinking they know what it's about. That's what it's about. But We're on the front of Sammy Hagar calling himself the Red Rocker. Dude. But the dime is, is the I-10, right? No, has nothing fucking to do with that shit. Okay. It means exactly. So it ends in Pedro or it begins. In those days, it was California 11. Okay. So it wasn't even I 110 yet. And the 10 is 23 miles I 10. By the way, the I 10 goes from Santa Monica to Jacksonville. You want to get to Florida for Pedro? Just make a starboard on the I 10 and keep going. <laughs> do do I like driving? Yeah. Okay. The last two tours I just did, like this last one I did, it's 10,380 miles, 48 gigs, 48 days. I drove every one of them. And is it always you driving? Well, I got a bad knee, you know. They came yeah. back. The surgery's only lasted 40 years. And so I can't really schlep the gear, so I feel I can help out by being the wheel man. I'll fucking drive you, man. I don't know if there's enough room in the boat. The longest I ever drove in one fell swoop, only stopping for gas, was 21 and a half hours. Oof. So I can do it. We I'm call your... that a hell ride. It was a hell ride. And there was no uppers involved either. My That's smart theory about Double Nickels, it is the least expensive, greatest album of all time with the most good songs on it. It has more great songs on it than any other greatest album of all time. Well, that, only... you know, it's funny. You know, like I told you, the method, how the sequence came. Georgie got first pick. He picks his solo song. Yeah. <laughs> Then D. Boone got second pick, Anxious Mofo, he picks, which is my favorite guitar solo by him. It's so econo, just the right notes. It's like a Vincent Van Gogh painting. And then I got third pick. I picked political song for Mike Jackson, which I actually sent that to his management. <laughs> I, I thought if Mike Jackson sang that song, we would never have to explain ourselves in an interview again. <laughs> I never got word back. I never got word yeah. back. That's fucked up. And now look at him. Now look at the fucking guy. So did it surprise you when this was and has remained considered one of the greatest records of all time? Was it surprising? Because, you know, you're coming up with these audio flyers and then all of a sudden this becomes the thing. Blame it on the Hooskers. 
It's a snapshot of where the band was. And it's very dynamic because these are evolutionary people, ourselves included. We're part of this movement that is constantly evolving. If there wasn't the movement, I don't know if there would have been a double nickels on the dime. I don't know if there would have been a minimum. There would have been Watt and D. Boone playing together because yeah. they liked each other. But man, a lot of what you're hearing is because we got involved with these other people. And so do you do you ever go back and take this in? You ever listen to this? What I do is songs I wrote for the Minutemen, I will play again. They're like 40 years old now. Yeah, yeah. I won't play Georgie songs, D. Boone songs. I don't think it's right. I shouldn't dick leech off it. But I do play songs I wrote for those guys. I mean, when you're home alone and for enjoyment, do you ever put on this record? No, because it cry. I couldn't even listen to that stuff. You know what? I started listening to it again and where I got the inspiration for my third opera, Hyphenate Man, was yeah. that we Jamie Cano documentary. I had to go and listen to those records again. I hadn't listened to them since he got killed. Stay tuned because part three of Watt Rates the Minutemen will be coming at you next week. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to Watt, my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Tim Bugby for hooking this up, Rudy Fishman, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the endless kick-in-the-nuts pleasure of punk and post-punk is to dive headfirst into the David Pajo series, including the man himself rating Slint's discography, that's episodes 94 to 101. No Ages Randy Randall rating the Jesus Lizard. That's 70 and 71. Along with a searing, soul-bearing interview with No Ages Randy Randall. That's episode 88. Then there's Bob Nastanovich rating Pavement. That series runs from 49 to 58. Our stupidly popular episode about Nirvana. That's number 30. The Replacements with Bob Mayer, 28 and 29. And then 18 is the Pixies. Join us during the upcoming week for Discography's week-long double nickels all the time deep dive. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you're a week ahead of the action and you're already listening to Watt Part 3. But then there's also this to look forward to. This Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discography's The Top 10. This week's list features the indomitable Joe Kennedy, and in honor of blaming it on the Hooskers, it focuses on our top 10 most ambitious punk albums ever. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discography and check out the thematically related deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Our Patreon's been up and running for a year, and with two episodes a week coming at you, there are over a hundred Patreon episodes at this point. That's an entire universe of indispensable music podcasts available to you for the price of a cup of coffee a week. And it's free to become a basic member, so go there and do that. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, December 22nd, we're coming at you with Watt Part 3. Trust me, 
You're not going to want to miss it. This one's packed to the gills with double nickels. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Discography.